Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. So welcome to this AKC lecture, which is given by Baroness Deborah Bull. Uh, welcome, Deborah. We're so pleased to have you giving this lecture. Your, your topic is the Civic University. Now, um, Baroness Bull has asked to give this lecture as an interview, a conversation. So that's what we're going to do for the next um, 40 minutes or so. Deborah Bull is a Vice President and Vice Principal for London at King's and also the Senior Advisory Fellow for Culture um, here at King's, and she sits as a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. Deborah joined King's in 2012, following a very successful career in the arts as a, as a dancer, um, a performer at the Royal Ballet, and then as a creative leader and cultural commentator. Uh, she danced with the Royal Ballet for 20 years before joining the Royal Opera House Executive to develop new art, new artists and new audiences. She became creative director of the Royal Opera House in 2008, leading on its Olympic programming as well as its live relays to big screens nationwide. So um, Deborah, uh, you, have, you have really sort of distinctive experience of leadership um, in your career as an, as an artist, as a dancer, and then also, of course, as uh, vice principal at King's. So I can't think of anyone better to talk to us about um, the topic of the Civic University and perhaps we'll talk a bit in particular about London and the arts and leadership um, in, that, in that context. Great, well thank you. I'm really delighted to be here and uh, delighted to have a chance to talk uh, to the students, also have, to have a conversation with you too. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Yes, great, me too. So, um, well let's start off with this idea of the Civic University, which is the title uh, you, you gave for your lecture. Can you just tell us what does that mean? To, what, what does the phrase Civic University mean? Yeah, so, so it's not a, an unknown phrase. It's a phrase that has been used a lot about universities, but to be honest, not universities like King's. It's usually been used about universities that grew out of uh, local need um, and, and are, were very much rooted in the needs of local communities. And, and King's history is not that history. You know, King's was, do, was, was born as a centre of learning. Whereas you think of somewhere like, I mean, let's say Derby University, for instance. Derby University grew out of a local technical college, which grew out of the need to develop skills for, for, for the region. So a very, very different trajectory. But when we adopted the term at King's, we adopted it knowing and we adopted it with the ambition to, uh, to reimagine what a civic university within the heart of a global city would look like in the 21st century. I mean, there have been many, many efforts and stabs at defining, you know, what is a civic university. Um, but I point, I think, to, towards the thinking of John Goddard, who talked about um, a university where it's not a 
separate intention alongside the core mission of teaching and research. It's a university where the civic uh, connections and potential are embedded within learning, where they provide unique learning opportunities, where they provide opportunities for research which truly has social and local impact and therefore global impact by the way um, and it's a university which goes beyond those core purposes uh, and recognizes that it has a, a a function and a place within the community in which it, it in which it's based so a civic university has to have porous borders you know, it cannot have big white walls or big, big any kind of walls, actually, um, through which uh, people and ideas uh, can't flow. So it's, it's not separated from its communities. And the, it's, for me, really, really important concept and core, at the core of this is mutual benefit. That, that kings can contribute to its local communities, but our local communities can contribute to us. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of the ways in which that's manifest. Yes. Yeah, thank you. That, that was... That was really helpful. I mean, I guess the King's ethos of service to society is really important here, isn't it? And it's trying to think about how that actually plays out sort of uh, in, in the context of, of London and um, yeah, how, how, how are we not just in service to society as some kind of abstract thing, but in service to the local community, the, the various different communities around, around King's. And I think I think you that's that that's really important. And that that notion of society as being something out there, you know, that's sort of an ether out there. Actually, when we what what does society mean? Society means people, right? It means people, and and we are as as kings. We we are situated in in in, in three of you know the biggest of London's biggest boroughs. You, the, the the boroughs where we we sit are the size of some cities elsewhere yeah. in the in the UK, um, in terms of their population not necessarily their geography and those are incredibly diverse populations so they, there are many many challenges but there's also a mass of lived experience and learning within those those communities um, so and I think one of the um, so when Professor Byrne, Ed Byrne, who is currently the principal but, but uh, actually we're at a transition moment but when he arrived seven or eight years ago he looked at the sort of the overall picture in Kings and said I can see that we're deeply connected internationally I can't really see that we make the most of London. Mm. And, and it, was, it was absolutely right. You know, we were, we were in London, but we weren't necessarily of London. We weren't necessarily with London. Um, of course, that's a terrible sweeping statement. And there will always have been academics and indeed many students who were intimately connected with local communities. But as an institution, yes. we didn't really think uh, very deeply about those London connections. Yes, yes, and I know that's that's really been a focus, hasn't it, of, of King's uh, vision mm -hmm. for the last few years, and obviously a big part of your job is to to play a leadership role in that. Yeah. Um, I mean, London is it is a it's not just any city, is it? It's obviously <laughs> I mean, we you know we it's the capital of of um, England. It's it's uh, we also think of it as a global city. Um, but it's also a very large and fragmented city. I mean, you talk, perhaps it's easier to talk about, you know, the boroughs that King serves rather than London as a whole. And I think, you know, res people who live in London, I mean, you know, I, I live in Hackney and um, people often feel more at home in their local neighbourhood rather than in a sense of the city as a whole. Um, I mean, do you, do you think that's a challenge for Kings to, 
you know, is there such a thing as London, <laughs> or is it, or you know, as as a whole, um, how to, how how would we how do you make sense of that um, given just the scale of of the city? I think I think you're 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 absolutely right. You're absolutely right, and it made me think of a comment that was actually made when I was working in the cultural sector. So. Um, a group of us, you know, across London, uh, were were we were, uh, you know, somebody from uh, somebody who worked in Manchester was talking to us, and this person said, you know, when I'm in Manchester, I can see Team Manchester. I can see that the mayor and the director of the universe of the local museums and the you know the provost chancellor of the university and the police chief and the, they all meet. They all know each other. And she said, "Where's Team London?" Yeah. And I thought that's a really interesting comment. And of course, to your point, you, you really can't have Team London. It, it can't be a single team because London is too big. It is too diverse. Um, and, and, and I think whereas some if you were if you were, for instance, let's go back to Derby and say Derby University. Now, Derby, of course, is incredibly diverse, too, but it is smaller and, and there are fewer um, institutions. Uh, that could see themselves playing a sort of an anchor or a convening role. Within London, we have over 40 higher education institutes. So, so you know, why, why is King, why, why Kings, why not UCL, Imperial, uh, Queen Mary? You know, there's, there's so many universities. So I think the key is not to try to boil the ocean. Yes. You know, you do, you do have to... Um, bite off what you can chew really and and you have you have to start i think you have to start locally mm. um of course in kings kings is also by the way massively complex and diverse of course and yes. full of um full of academics and students who are brilliantly um innovative and uh, you know driving their own paths and don't necessarily want to be told oh well sorry you can't work in hackney you've got to work in Lamp and Southwark. So what we had to do when thinking about this um, is, 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 is recognize that, and to use a terrible cliche, a thousand flowers will bloom. Mm -hmm. They will. Mm -hmm. But what, do we, what can we do from the center of the institution to support that? Mm -hmm. And where do we need to intervene to do more? Where do we have a key responsibility to do more? And, and I believe that responsibility is in our local neighborhoods mm. um, because we are, we are big institutions, relatively well-resourced um, compared to others. We have incredible assets in our people. Our people are absolutely the thing that our communities and our local authorities say to us when we say, how can we help? It's your people. It's the brains and the brilliance and the ideas and the innovation. Um, and and so, so we have, I think we have a responsibility to those local communities. And, as I, and I, I'll keep going back to this. I don't think that's a one-way conversation. I genuinely think, uh, and it's evidenced, that within those communities there is so much potential for learning, distinctive learning, uh, learning that supports our, our students in uh, becoming the change makers that we would like them to be, um, that supports their natural um, ethos of wanting to serve, wanting to contribute. Um, and the research opportunities given, I mean, back to your point about the diversity of, of those communities, we have around us, basically, we have a, 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 a microcosm of the global population. Mm. So the potential for research and to generate knowledge, which can be immediately translated into action, is 
so rich. Um, so, so my challenge has been really to create a framework that doesn't, uh, it certainly doesn't try to stop people doing things because that way madness would absolutely lie. Um, but how do we facilitate people doing what they want to do, but make a coherent narrative? Because if you, if you can't make a coherent narrative about it, then all of the good work that we're doing sort of goes it doesn't go for nothing. It does not go for nothing. That was a terrible sentence I was about to finish. The good work is always valuable, but you can't tell a story about kings and how it contributes to London without some kind of framework, that, that, that a very broad framework that can pull it together. Yeah. Can you, is, is there an example you can give of um, this kind of exchange or reciprocity between kings and the local community you talked about how you know we 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 have something to offer those communities but also they have something to offer us and it's really important that it goes both ways um it'd be interesting yeah just to hear i mean i'm sure there are many examples but just to hear about about yeah um so so you could point to you could point to many examples within the health sphere yeah. um certainly when you, when you're talking about people who are living with multiple chronic illnesses so um, the best people to tell you about living with multiple chronic illnesses are, guess yes. what, yes. the people who are living with them. So, so you can see lots of transfers of knowledge um, in both directions yes. across the health piece. Um, I mean, perhaps I could point to the example because it's very relevant to, to students of, of the civic challenge. So every year, um, and this is something we, we, we do coordinate from, you know, from the center to provide a, a, an opportunity. Um, so, so every year we invite uh, students and staff actually, but, but a lot of students get engaged in this, um, to work with a local charity partner to uh, identify a local challenge and a, solu a, a potential solution for that challenge. And then uh, they, the, 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 the teams are, are, are match, we match make the teams. I don't think match made is the past, is the past tense of that, is it? But we, yeah. we match the teams and then support them through ideas development. They have mentors and, 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 and so on. And then they, 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 they pitch the ideas. So in that process, what you're, what you're getting is this, um, this exchange of, uh, new thinking from the, the students, uh, possibly theoretical frameworks too, as how to how to think about some of these challenges. But uh, within the charities, you have access to people who are living through these challenges, and and together that kind of synergy is intended to come up with uh, new solutions, which will eventually enable sustainable change. So that's that's kind of what one 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 example. Yes, thank you. Um, well, so I want to ask you a bit about leadership um, <laughs> in particular. Um, I mean, I guess there are many different forms of leadership, aren't there, and different leadership mm. styles and, and so on. What kind of leadership do you think is required to make King's a genuinely civic university? I know that's quite a big question. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a, it's a really good, it's a really good question. And, and, and as this, this, the theme is leadership, I mean, perhaps I can go back a little bit and, and, and uh, sort of talk about the examples of leadership that I've observed in my own kind of personal leadership journey. If that, if that's, yeah, in, that's interesting, I will, I will really come. Yes. Perfect. So, so I was a ballet dancer. 
And I don't know how many uh, people uh, uh, in this session will uh, know much about ballet dancing, but ballet dancing uh, is, is, is very much a kind of 19th century, it goes back further by the way, but the, 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 the 18th, 19th century really. And many of the modes of behavior and being felt a lot like the 19th century, if I'm being honest. So typically in a ballet studio, you will always have, you, a single person at, at the at the front of the room, I mean, literally at the front of the room, who is, is telling you what to do, either leading the class or leading or leading the rehearsal or choreographing the ballet. So that model of, you know, one-to-many leadership and uh, a, a ballet, of course, is a silent art form. So, so, so you know, the, the person at the front of them was the only person with a voice, too, typically. I mean, I'm, I'm painting this in very black and white terms. But that really was my model of, of, of leadership growing up. And it's, it's still, to some extent, the model of leadership people think about in the art world. You know, the, the, the big figure um, who, you know, either shouts at people or inspires people to do something remarkable. Um, so when I stopped being a dancer and transferred into, into these real sort of, um, I would say that they're kind of change roles, actually. The role I did at the Opera House was a similar role in some ways. We probably don't have time to go too much into it, but it was about transforming the organization um, and getting it to think much more about its relationship with the outside world and how that was mutually beneficial. Um, so, so I had to learn on the job, really, as to how to how to lead, how to how to make change, how to enable change. And you can see my language shifting even as I describe it. You know, from make, driving and making yes. to enabling and supporting. Um, and so I had um, eleven years at the Opera House, not as a dancer. I had twenty years as a dancer, eleven not as a dancer. And that really was my own school for learning, if you like. When I came to King's, though, I learned a huge amount more about how you might try to lead in such a diverse organization, an organization so full of specialists. Mm. Um, so whoever tries to lead any part of Kings will never know as much mm. in the specialist fields as the people uh, on, on, on the ground. It's not like a kind of biscuit factory where you, you know, all you're doing is making biscuits and the person at the top is the best biscuit maker. That's a terrible analogy. The King's is never going, the university is never going to be like that. Um, so I, I think that uh, the, the essence of leading in a place like King's, and honestly, if you ask me next year or the year later, I might change my mind again because I do think leadership is a journey. I don't think we ever quite get there. But I think there is a balance. Uh, you have to sit somewhere on the balance between serving and learn and leading. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's not to say that you don't need sometimes to stick your neck out and to be at the front and to be shouting, we need to go that way. Yes. But oftentimes you need to be in the middle and enabling and supporting. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so that I think the most the most effective way to enable change in an institution like King's is to work very hard to uh, understand how that change is going to be genuinely beneficial for the for as many people as possible yeah. and to spend a lot of time explaining that so so with the with the London piece um, 
where you know my primary sort of day responsibility now is to is to encourage and support faculties students academics in making the most of london and and doing the most for london and and really um you know the first two years of doing that job was was spent saying please don't tell me what you're going to do in london in addition to what you see as your day job i'm not here to ask you to do additional things i'm here to help you work out how can how do you need to partner with london london's institutions its agencies its people its communities how do you need to partner with london in order to be the best that you can be to be the university you want to be to be the faculty to 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 provide the learning you want to provide where where can you where where will it where will it enhance what you do and where will not working with london be be so negative for you um so so really um that that helped me understand a, a, a lot more about the process of listening within leadership um, and of uh, really getting under the skin of what it is people are trying to do in order to understand how this concept of the city around us and its potential could support them. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's really interesting. Um, obviously, I'm an academic myself. Um, I'm mm. a philosopher in an arts and humanities context, and I, I do sometimes think that academics are are quite difficult to lead. <laughs> um, I, it's a bit like herding cats, isn't it? Trying to lead a bunch of academics who are all, all you know, have very strong ideas and often quite strong convictions that their way is the right way mm. and are quite self-reliant. Um, do you think it's? Do you think that there are particular challenges to leading? Well, in, <laughs> we don't have well, to name names, but I'm just, no, I'm just no, and it's, it's it's an observation I've I've made myself in. You know, being in being in a department, for example, and seeing the challenges of of just leading a group of academics. Um, what do you think? Yeah, of um, when I when I came from the opera house, um, uh, you know, we all we all like we, we all like to find a narrative, don't we? That 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 roots us that roots us uh, in 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 our in our situation. Can I can I find the narrative here? And and the narrative that seemed to me to be relevant was was actually that um, the academics were the equivalent of the sort of the artists at the, at, at, at the Opera House um, in that they were um, superstars in their own right and in their own field. Um, they didn't necessarily feel their affiliation to the institution, more they felt their affiliation to their discipline. Mm -hmm. That was, was their first affiliation was to their discipline. Um, rather than to uh, the, the institution or to, or, or to the faculty. Mm. Um, and that is always going to be, I think, the tension mm. um, for any institution is how do you create a framework which gives those, um, those superstars the, um, uh, the, 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 the grounding that they need in order to get on with, with what they actually are really want to do which is which is their work um, and I think that is always going to be a tension and one of the um, kind of comforts really is you have to accept that not everybody will want to engage in everything yes you, you, you do there, there will be some academics who are very drawn to the concept of working in partnership with 
you know, London's communities, and some who are perhaps more drawn to the concept of, you know, working in partnership with international communities, or indeed not at all. And I think you you, you have to accept that, that there will be differences in in what people want to do. Um, the the other the the other tension within that is we do have the organisational structure, um, and so you know the, the the faculties are trying to are trying to uh, provide some sort of order in order to um you know in order for the you know the the the, the engine to turn on every morning frankly you know that there have there have to be some systems but um, but you're right it is it is one of the um one of the difficulties but it's also it's also the richness of the assets right the richness of the assets is that you are all individuals who think autonomously and uh, and, and want to change the world i mean i guess and i think well, certainly in philosophy and perhaps in, in the humanities <clears throat> more generally, academics tend to be highly trained in critique um, and argument. <laughs> so, um, and so they're, they're very skilled at, at, at that. And it's always easy to criticise a leader, isn't it? It's, it's always, I think it's quite difficult to be a leader and, and quite easy to, to criticise one. I mean, of course, we see that in our, in our sort of, political but in the political sphere um you know ev every leader is probably going to be as much criticized as they as they are praised um and i'm, I'm sure that's true <laughs> uh, i mean i want I, would, I wonder if that's something you've have have you you know in being in a leadership role have you had to kind of figure out how to handle critique and resistance and criticism and just sort of maintain your sense of well this is the direction we're going in and um, I, I went to a really interesting um event uh, with evelyn welch um, a few weeks ago i think it was organized by a network of, of it was particularly it was particularly focused on gender so it was about women and leadership and anyway the first the first um meeting uh evelyn was talking and she was talking obviously she's a fantastic leader um really a remar really remarkable leader but she was talking about how she is she she said that she felt that she was able to be a good leader because she was basically quite thick-skinned and just didn't take criticism very personally um is that the only way to to deal with with critique or are, are there other strategies other ways of handling it do you think as a leader yeah i mean i think evelyn is remarkably resilient i i i i really do um and i think all of this has changed massively um e even over my leadership journey uh, really and it, it seems trite to mention social media but of course social media creates a platform for anybody to publish uh criticism mm, um yeah. Uh, and you know there will there will be and are lots of debates about I mean especially at the moment as we're having this conversation you know debates about uh, about uh, who who has the right or not or not to police that um, but it does mean that uh, you you know you are you are you are particularly particularly in troubled times where let's face it you know nobody nobody has led uh has led uh, nobody has has led through a time like this for generations so so everybody is trying and people will be getting it wrong but it is playing out in this um in in a, in a kind of culture where failure is is 
just not tolerated and it is incredibly public and actually you know what we know about any anything be it learning to ride a bike to learning to run a country or, or running a country you're, you're going to get it wrong from time to time of, of, of course you are um but we seem to be in a position where nobody's willing to tolerate failure nor is anybody willing to admit it um, and these things, I think, um, are, you know, they spiral into each other. Um, I long, I long for a leader to hold their hand up and say, actually, that was wrong. We got that wrong. We thought that, mm. we thought it was the best reasons, but we got it wrong and we're going to change it. And it is so rare to hear that. And I think uh, within one's own personal leadership, I, I very much hold on, on to that, um, that um, because I, I think, I do think it. I do think it's very, very powerful actually to admit that you got you got something wrong and that that you 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 take the criticism. But um, there are the, the thickness of one's skin is is quite is quite a factor here. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you don't have and and there's a balance, isn't there? Because you don't want to be so thick-skinned that you are impermeable to critique. Because yeah. actually. You know, if we go back to what I just said, you're going to get it wrong. Well, somebody needs to tell you you've got it wrong because you won't always know it. Somebody needs to explain why you got it wrong. They need to explain the impact of that decision. And if you're so thick-skinned, um, and I'm not suggesting, by the way, I'm not su suggesting anyone is that, but if one was that thick-skinned that you didn't hear that, then how are you going to take on the learning? So I, I think there, I do think that leaders need to take care to. Um, certainly have people around them who are willing to be honest yeah. um, and to tell them but also to take care you know not to you know not to be overly obsessed with things like social media mm. um, uh, because actually the uh, you know the these things are they can really can really hurt you yeah. know it can really hurt um, because because people are not always as careful um, you know, in anger, they're not always as careful with the language as, as they as they might be. So it's um, I think it's it's probably you know harder and harder. And what we don't want is leaders that are impermeable um, or impervious to you know that they that they build shields around them uh, to defend themselves from this harmful critic. You know. Petty, not petty. It's often absolutely meant, but this constant. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, they need to be permeable to considered, considered and justified criticism. Because the one thing you know is you are going to get it wrong. Yeah, everybody knows that. Yeah. So I, I, I would, I would love to see a bit more celebration of failure. And that's, um, I mean, that that was something in the in in the when I was working in the cultural sector. Um, of course, the critics would say things failed, by the way, but um, but we, 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 we didn't really like to say that a production hadn't really made it or yeah. Yeah. that you know, the performance wasn't great. Um, and actually, I think within the university context, I think perhaps we are we are more interested in failure because of the learning that comes from failure. Yeah. You know, experiments that fail don't actually fail. They teach you something. They always teach yeah. you something. Yeah. Um, but I think as a, you know, as a society, we have become very intolerant of failure, very fearful of failure. And the flip side of that is that if you're fearful of failure, you stop taking risks. And if you stop mm -hmm. taking risks, you start 
who stop making advances. So yeah, it's a it's a tricky one and uh Gosh, what a time for anybody to be a leader. Yes, yes. Well, that, that leads, leads nicely into my, my last question, really. Um, so, as you know, this AKC series is called Leadership in Troubled Times. Um, when my colleague um, Dan DeHannis put it together, he, he had no idea how troubled the times were going to be. I mean, I think he, you know, he was thinking about the context of global popularism and political polarisation, which, of course, has been so manifest here in the UK with, with Brexit. And so that was the kind of, I think they were the kind of troubled times he was thinking about. And of course, we couldn't have predicted how troubled these times would become with the COVID outbreak and, and all, its, all its effects and, and consequences. And I know it's had a particularly devastating effect on the arts. Mm. Um, you know, sort of seeing, my, seeing my local cinema that's been closed and reopening and then closing again. And, mm um theatres music venues and all the people who work in them not just the performers and artists but obviously all the people who who work together to make the arts happen and you know that that's really struggling and um I mean how do you see the arts sector changing as a as a as a consequence of this I mean how um how how how, how hopeful are you and, and and do you think that that good leadership can help to save the arts or is it just is it are we all just a hostage to fortune and it's a case of kind of clinging on as best we can <laughs> hoping, hoping that things you know is, is there a limit to to our power to actually control this situation and is that what we need to learn or and and, and how do leadership how do leaders you know, yeah how are they how are they to navigate these very troubled waters with, with so much uncertainty yeah i mean it, it, it that that sense of can this be controlled you know thinking more broadly um is a is a really interesting question and if you look at the countries that are you know sort of controlling this they, they are very authoritarian countries um that 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 can you know can literally control their populations and yeah. and is that a price we would want to pay mm -hmm. um but but that sense of being buffeted i mean you use the phrase choppy waters and i was already i was already thinking about you know how you how you steer a a ship or a boat through choppy waters and you have to keep turning it to face the wave and you have to keep turning it and you know your direction might be over there but you if you don't turn yeah. it to face the wave you know you're, you're going to go over yeah. um, and whether that whether that's a useful a useful <laughs> analogy or not, I have no idea um, but th thinking about the the cultural sector at the, at the beginning of the pandemic at, at, in March um, we, we all had a, a very different sense. We, we sort of had a bit of, you know, blitz spirit, gung-ho sense, didn't we? You know, we were kind of all in it together and going to battle it through. And, um, and uh, that, was, that was true, you know, that, I think that was true across the piece. What became very quickly evident was that culture... So, so my, my riff on this usually begins with the very straightforward, don't worry about the art, because actually, art art is art will survive yes you know yes. after the nuclear holocaust the cockroaches will still be there apparently you know and and, and art will be there and people yes. will make art and they will do it 
for release, they will do it to communicate, they do it to, to, to you know, be angry, to criticize, to celebrate. Our art will be fine. Yes. Yes. Artists mm. are, the, are the worry and arts organizations are another worry. So arts organizations, and again, this is a, uh, this is a, this isn't always a popular thing to say, but you know, arts organizations exist to serve the, 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 the needs of artists and communities largely, and they will change over, over time. And, and, and what, what history tells us is that if organizations don't flex and change, then even the biggest, most historic organizations will go under. And I always, you know, love the one about um, Encyclopedia Britannica, which was, you know, hundreds of years old. But the uh, the CEO uh, famously said, um, when asked about CD-ROMs mm. in those days in Encarta, and you'll have to explain that to your I students. Our students will have no idea what we're talking. No idea what CD-ROMs are. <laughs> um, it was basically like a disc with knowledge on it. Yeah. <laughs> it prior to a computer, it actually came on a round disc. Um, and and the, when that when when Encarta, which was a CD-ROM version of a of an encyclopedia, came out, Encyclopedia Britannica CEO said, "We're not in the computer business. We're in the book business." Mm. And with that, he blinded himself to the changing world. And guess what? And so Encyclopedia Britannica disappeared. And there were, you know, there are many examples of businesses that haven't um, reacted to changing times. Um, now, we have a different view of some of our arts organizations because we invest in them, the sense that they are the art itself. Of course, they're not. They're repositories and custodians and curators. Um, what was interesting about the uh, the early pandemic was that those organizations that that uh, understandably fixated on when they could reopen their buildings were least well placed because the truth and the evident uh, what was evident to a lot of people in the beginning was the answer to that question was going to be probably in a year's time if you're lucky yeah you know that that was i mean we we like to think it was going to be the summer but and yeah. it but it really wasn't. Yeah. So that raised a big question about um, about what do you do with a with a building because a building can be a you know it's a it's a weight around your shoulders. The organisations that um, have been I mean thriving is perhaps the wrong word because goodness I'm not sure anybody's thriving right, right now. But the ones that absolutely pivoted to super serve their communities and to recognize what was it their communities needed now and organizations like um the albany in deptford in south london or slung low which is in uh, uh holbeck in outside leeds um they uh, really um went to the extreme of this so so slung low became the first the responder for leeds county council to uh, for Le leeds council sorry um for local emergencies so they became the food bank they became the food provider all the time continuing to do learning opportunities for students to do outdoor performances when they could to do streamed performances from their community center um and it's been so inspiring to watch them and and you know, the rationale for doing that, in the words of their director, Anna Lane, is uh, we are first and foremost a community organization. What does our community need now? It needs food. And we are a storyteller. And actually, um, what is the story of this pandemic? And we are going to live that story with our communities and, and tell that story. Um, 
And so those, but those organizations, that organization does have a building. It's the, the ones with massive buildings that are rely, their business model depends on ticket income that have been really, really strapped. I mean, they have been the ones that the government funding has targeted. The 1.57 billion um, has been focused on those buildings and, and, and enabling them to survive. What's fallen through the cracks of all this are the freelance artists, makers, designers, creators, and it is a sector that is hugely made up of freelancers, you know, a massive amount of, you know, very few, um, something like the National Theatre, for instance, it, in, it employs a lot of people and, and it's a very responsible organisation, but the artists you see on its stages, the playwrights who write the plays, they don't work for the National Theatre, they're freelance. And so um, the freelance art sector is massively impacted and it will impact on talent pipelines too um, because the jobs are not there. So graduates coming through, uh, young people who want to be artists are not going to go into the profession. Um, so it is a really, really turbulent time and it is a time of, you know, some terrible individual stories and terrible institutional stories of, of organisations having to lay people off or close their doors. Um, the, the art will come through. The, the leaders are some of the most remarkable, resilient, creative, innovative people. And it is, a, it is a strong cohort of leaders right now because there has been an investment in cultural leadership training over the last two or three decades in the UK. So actually, it is a very resilient bunch of leaders. It's a very collaborative bunch of leaders. Um, I do worry for all leaders right now as to where they are taking their support because everybody is looking to their leaders to be you know, on it all the time, to have the answers, to not break down. Um, and actually, um, where are they taking their support right now? Um, so that sense of collaborative, collaboration across leaderships, I think is really valued. And uh, it's, a, it's a kind of safety net for people right, right now is to be able to share with other leaders um, and to try to try to uh, yeah weather the storm I mean there's another cliche but um, uh, uh, I don't think we'll be able to I think we'll only with hindsight be able to truly understand all of this and the path the pathways we all tried to take through it mm, yeah thank you um, well it was it was really inspiring to hear hear that story of the uh, the, the Leeds organization who mm. you know, they didn't just put stuff online they actually thought about serving the local community on the ground and yeah, yeah. that was and, that. I, and actually um we're just um king's students right now are involved in something called the civic civic arts award i think i hope they've got that the civic <laughs> arts award which uh, which uh, the gulbenkian foundation is doing with kings so we are um and the king's cmci students are uh, uh, doing case studies on the shortlisted organizations to really analyze what it is they have done to pivot towards being a truly civic arts organizations in the in this time so um, in March I think the winners will be an, announced and there'll be some really interesting case studies to help us understand a little bit more about what some of these organizations have done yeah great well so, something to I think we're all sort of looking forward to the spring at the, at the moment so, so something else to look forward to I mean I think I think what you said about both resilience and collaboration as being the key um, to leadership in these times is, is yeah. really, really important. 
Um, yeah. Well, thank, thank you so much, um, Deborah, for sharing your, your insights and your thoughts. It's been just a, a real pleasure to, to have this conversation with you. Um, I'm, I'm glad you suggested doing it in this format because it's given me uh, <laughs> the, the opportunity to, uh, to be part of the conversation. So thank you so much for, for your time. Um, no, thank, thank you. And hopefully uh, we, will, we will see each other and, and we'll see, see the assembled community here in person before very long. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking. Thank you.